0: Hey, it's Curious City editor Alexander Solomon. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know that Curious City gets a lot of questions about Chicago's neighborhoods, their history, the people that shaped them, the kinds of industries that existed, and how they've changed over the years. Usually, we answer one question at a time. But on this week's episode, we're going to knock out several of your neighborhood questions all at once. And we invited somebody to our studio who could help us do that. Historian Dominic Pesiga. He's kind of like a walking encyclopedia of the city's history.
1: The stockyard itself, that is the Union Stockyard, which was the livestock market, was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never closed. I worked there at the end of the uh, uh, stockyard era, and I remember working Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We were always open just in case some farmer from Iowa brought some cattle in and had to be, you know, penned.
0: Lucky for us, he agreed to take your calls and questions about everything from the slaughterhouses to the breweries. That's all coming up right after the break.
2: Curious City is supported by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp online therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Visit betterhelpcom city today to get 10% off your first month.
0: Hey, it's Alexandra, and I'm here with historian Dominic Pasiga and we've got a few question askers lined up with some burning questions that are ready to go. Professor, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Okay. First up with a question about Chicago neighborhoods is Ernesto. Ernesto, what are you
3: curious about? Hi. My question is, uh, when I first moved to Chicago, I lived in Humboldt Park, and that was— at that point, mostly a Puerto Rican neighborhood, that's changing a little bit. And there's other neighborhoods like a Ukrainian Village, which obviously get their name from from that ethnicity. And that got me thinking, how often do neighborhoods change ethnic population? Is this a common occurrence? Does it happen frequently or less frequently?
1: Where do you live now?
3: I'm in Edgewater now.
1: You're in Edgewater. Okay, and that's a neighborhood that's gone through a lot of change also, um, mm-hmm. and gentrification and so forth. Measuring ethnicity is kind of difficult. Each group has its different history and its, you know, uh, different prejudices against them as far as moving in and out goes. Probably um, the longest group that has maintained its ethnicity is Bronzeville and the Black Belt on the south side, which really developed about 100 years ago, 110 years ago. The Polish community on Milwaukee Avenue... Uh, that settled about 1857, and and probably remained mostly Polish till about 1967. So that's among the white groups. That's among the lo- the longest. Uh, and then it began to become more Puerto Rican, uh, Mexican. So you see change going kind of constantly. The the average I would guess would be about three generations. What's interesting, you know, I grew up in back of the yards, and there were 12 Catholic churches in two square miles, and uh, I mean better than Rome. And those churches were built to last forever, right? Well, most yeah. of them are closed now because the ethnic groups have moved out. Uh, you know, I was at a Polish church. Around the corner was a Lithuanian church. Up the street was a Mexican church. Then there was a German church and an <laughs> Irish church. Now it's primarily Mexican, uh, and that community doesn't need 12 Catholic churches.
3: Are the last things that leave the neighborhood after the population starts shifting are the food stores?
1: Mm-hmm. And and that's true because the residents that leave last are the older people, and they depend on those food stores. Uh, you know, you can't buy good Puerto Rican food in a Polish deli. You can't buy good no, Polish. No,
3: I I've tried. Right
1: right? <laughs> you can't buy good Polish food in a in an in an Irish deli. So you know, those are the last places to to go, and and the churches.
3: When I when I moved here, in eighty three, I moved to Humboldt Park because we had family there. Sure. You stay with somebody for a a couple of months, maybe Mm -hmm. six months or a year, and then you find a place nearby, and then, you know, little by little. And where'd you move
0: from, Ernesto? Puerto Rico.
3: Puerto Rico.
1: So, you know, Poles call that Rodace. Um, Italians call it Paisani. Jews call it Landsmen, you know. People that are from the same area who come together. There are, in the Mexican community, uh, little Michiquans, and, you know, Little uh, Norteños and, and places like in the published community, there's little Port Halal and there's little Warsaw. And to the outside, they're all Poles or all Mexicans or all Puerto Ricans or all Jews, whatever. But to the inside, mm, there are all these little divisions.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, Ernesto, do you feel like we've answered your question? I think we yes. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ernesto. I enjoyed talking with you.
4: Same here.
0: So our question asker now is Andrew Waple, and I know he's got a question for you about the stockyards. Hey, Andrew, what's your question?
2: So I was wondering what the record was at the stockyards for the highest number of animals, all animals, not just pigs, killed in a single day at the stockyards, and would they have slaughtered animals 24 hours a day generally? And if they didn't, how on earth could they have killed that many animals in a single day?
1: Uh, They did not kill 24 hours a day. There were basically two shifts. The stockyard itself, that is the union stockyard, which was the livestock market, was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never closed. It was always there to receive uh, animals. And the biggest run at the union stockyards was in the early 1920s, almost eight and a half million animals in one year. Chicago had developed first as a shipper's market in the 1860s. You know, it opened on Christmas Day, 1865. I mean, what better way to celebrate Christmas than to open a livestock market? (laughs) Uh, And from that point on, it was always open. Uh, I worked there at the end of the uh, uh, stockyard era, and uh, I remember working Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, We were always open just in case some farmer from Iowa brought some cattle in and had to be, you know, penned. Uh, so it's about eighteen and a half million animals in the early nineteen twenties. They did it twice, two years in a row. But from eighteen ninety three to nineteen thirty three, there were never fewer than thirteen million head of livestock on the market, uh, and like I say, about two thirds of those were slaughtered in Chicago.
2: So in a in a single day, then, what would have been the maximum number they may have killed at any one given point in time on a on a single day?
1: Well, that would be hard to hard hard to figure out since there were so many packing houses. There were the major packers like Swift, Armour. Uh, Wilson, uh, Hammond packing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there were a bunch of small meat packers. But uh, on on an average day, Armour would kill about 8,500 hogs, uh, probably about uh, 2,500 cattle, and maybe about 7,000 sheep. Wow. I mean, it was just an incredible line of constant movement of animals uh, onto the kill floor. And, you know, uh, 500,000 tourists a year came to the stockyards at the turn of the century, 19th into the 20th century. Sarah Bernhardt visited uh, the the nephews of the czar uh, of Russia, uh, Japanese princes. And every presidential candidate came to walk in the pens and showed that he was a friend of the working man. Hmm. Uh, So it was really quite an interesting place uh, and, and and a major attraction.
0: Andrew, are you surprised by the amount that we were slaughtering kind of on any given day in the city?
2: Oh, certainly. I mean, 18 and a half million animals in a year is just such an astounding number of a pig every second and a half or so. It's a question I've always wondered and uh, just a great privilege to, to hear straight from the source.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Andrew. I enjoyed talking with you.
0: All right. Up next, we've got a question from Brian Brasco. Brian, what's your question?
2: Uh, yeah. So my question is, what was the Ravenswood neighborhood or avenue before it is what it is today? Um, today there's a bunch of breweries and it's malt row and there's some catering places up there. It looks like there's some factories or manufacturing. I know there was like a pencil factory in Roscoe Village, but
1: what was up there before? You know, Ravenswood, um, of course, was on the edge of the city. Um, there were a lot of truck farmers originally in the area, a lot of German and uh, uh, English truck farmers who would grow vegetables, et cetera, bring, bring it into the city the markets, maybe to the hay market, et cetera. The Budlong brothers, okay, opened a pickle factory in the neighborhood in 1857, and then they expanded into the flower business and employed many Polish workers on a sort of seasonal basis who would just come up the, uh, the, the street. So the early commercial agriculture emphasized this truck farming, as I've said, and it was basically the mass production, interestingly enough, of pickles, flowers, and celery. Many taverns uh, opened along Lincoln Avenue, and that's also now what do you call it, Malt uh, Malt Row, right? Also, Rose Hill Cemetery opened in 1859. This is something that modern Chicagoans don't think about much, but Rose Hill uh, Cemetery and all cemeteries attracted not only mourners but picnickers. Mm-hmm. It was an open space. People would bring picnic baskets and, uh, and uh, you know uh, lay on the grass and spend a day. Uh, so this started to have increased traffic to raise, ra- Ravenswood, uh, and it began to transform this once mostly rural district. Uh, by the 1890s, you had the electric streetcars coming out. By the way, Ravenswood was brought into the city in 1889. It was a great annexation. We did this in order to attract the World's Fair of 1893 hmm. and okay. and show New York that we were catching up with them and we were going to pass them. We didn't because they swallowed Brooklyn and all the other outer boroughs, and so they stayed mm-hmm. the largest city. But uh, So Ravenswood comes into the city, and at that point, by 1890s or so, there's electric street cars. And you have to understand how important that is for d- development. You can't really have a housing housing development unless you can get people to get to work sure. and move people around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that becomes very, very important. Uh, and so, you know, while much of the history of the early community was German, um, much of that has disappeared, especially since World War I. But there are remnants in some of the shops and restaurants, as well as actually an original section of the Berlin Wall, which can be seen from the Brown Line uh, at Western Avenue. Oh, wow. So that's kind of interesting. Oh. Why bring it there? Well, because there were once Germans there, and there's not now I suppose there are some German kids who have moved to the suburbs who are moving back to Ravenswood <laughs> to get, you know, good veal uh, um, or something. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I hope we uh, answered your question, Brian. Do you feel like you're going to look at the neighborhood differently now?
1: Yeah. I mean,
2: I'm going to wait for, like, some hipster to open up, like, a pickle a pickle shop or something and <laughs> talk about it, you know, and its history of, like, how it used to start there. But uh, that's, that's pretty cool.
1: Sounds like a good investment. Yeah, I know,
2: right? I mean, there's no pickle factories anymore up there. so
0: That's true. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Brian, for joining us and for asking your question today.
1: Thank you so much for
2: answering my question.
1: Thank you.
0: So, Professor Brasiga, do you have a question, something that you've always wanted to know about Chicago that you kind of got in your mind?
1: Well, you know, Chicago presents itself as a constant question to me. uh, I grew up on the south side, I've walked the city, I've driven the city, uh, I'm constantly fascinated by the city. So uh, to give you one question I couldn't possibly do, but there are a million questions, and that keeps me interested and excited about looking at Chicago and hopefully will for a a good long time.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us today and taking on all of our questions from our listeners and for sharing your curiosity with us. Thank you. Thanks again to Dominic Pesiga for helping us answer all these great questions. And if you want to learn more about Chicago history, you can check out some of his books, including American Warsaw, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Polish Chicago, and more recently, American Slaughterhouse. And speaking of the slaughterhouses, did you know that back in the 1940s, Chicago school kids used to take local field trips there? Something that would be unthinkable today. That's coming up. A few years ago, reporter Monica Eng answered a question about what happened to Chicago's meatpacking industry. And while she was doing the reporting, she heard a tale about the stockyards that deserved a separate story of its own. The story was told by Ed Kramer, a WBEZ volunteer who remembered going there with his eighth grade class in 1941. Ed died in 2018 at the age of 89. He had a great memory and amazing Chicago stories. We got some Chicago school kids to help bring Ed's tale to life. But what you're about to hear is not for the squeamish.
4: I was in the eighth grade at Wicker Park Grammar School. Mrs. Paulson was my eighth grade teacher. And we uh, all packed our bag of lunches and went to the Wicker Park L train at Damon, north of Milwaukee, and we got off at the Swift and Company station. Now, imagine riding over the stock pens that were filled with cattle, looking down at this just herd of animals. They explained to us what we were going to see, and if anyone was faint of heart, they could uh, stay behind.
3: I'm going to be go the only
4: I'm But no one chose to stay behind, and uh, we went on this catwalk, and down below us, cows were being let in through a chute. A chain was whipped around the back legs of the cows. They were hoisted up into the air. Someone came along with a huge wooden sledge, hit them on the head and stunned them, and then their throats were cut. At that point, at least... half a dozen people in the group started to irp. And uh, I vividly remember that uh, Mrs. Paulson's son not only irped, but he also ended up passing out. And uh, after we saw the slaughtering process, they took us through the stockyard on the catwalk again. And we saw them actually strip the cow, take off the hide, cut the uh, carcass in half, and strip it down to the everything but the, uh, the oink and the squeak, is the, uh, as they said. From there, we went to have lunch. It was uh, quite an event. I
3: don't I'm watch. not
4: Most of the kids didn't even want to touch their bag of lunches. <laughs> that was our 8th grade outing. We uh, got back on the train, went back to school, and we got back by 3 o'clock.
0: Thanks to Monica Eng for that reporting and to the students of Mrs. Williams' class at Franklin Fine Arts Academy. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Joe Deso and Jason Mark produced the show. Maggie Sivett is our digital and engagement producer, and Sophia Lowe is our intern. And you, dear listeners, we rely on you and your questions to make this podcast every week. Be sure to send us your questions at wbez.org slash Curious City. Our interview today with Dominic Pasiga was originally recorded in 2018. I'm Alexandra Solomon. Thanks for listening.
1: and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.